Today's scripture reading comes from 1 Peter 3 to 9. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with Rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This is the reading of God's word. Uh, again, just a special welcome to you on this Easter Sunday, and uh, I want to wish everybody a happy Easter today. Uh, we are, I mean, this is actually kind of a, a momentous day in a sense because we stopped doing our virtual service today, so we're completely in person. And I don't know if that signals anything for us, but uh, it certainly is wonderful as we just kind of remember what we've been through in the last couple of years to see your faces and to be uh, present together. Uh, before I begin, why don't I just uh, open us up with a word of prayer? Let's pray together. Uh, God, we thank you for this Easter Sunday. And uh, if there's anything that we desperately uh, need in this moment, and perhaps all moments, is uh, we need hope. And uh, we need to draw our hope from, from you. And you give us this wonderful uh, event and this wonderful reason and this wonderful power to, to draw our hope from you. And so I pray, God, that uh, at this time you would speak to us, uh, you would fill us with a sense of hope as we just think about the meaning of Easter. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so this month what we've been doing is we have been looking at actually the resurrection for the entire month. And we've, the way we've been looking at the resurrection is we've tried to look at it from these two perspectives of grief and hope. And the reason we did that is because, you know, I was, I was looking through some of the passages uh, that speak about the resurrection. And one of the things I noticed is a lot of these passages have those two elements. They talk about grief and they talk about hope as if they're like these two unlikely dance partners. And on the one hand, you know, the, the relationship between them is somewhat reciprocal. Uh, because on the one hand, we, we need hope to get through the hard times. We need hope to get through grief. But on the other hand, grief can actually have the ability to uh, lead us deeper into uh, hope than the kind of hope we had before. And so I think while we may tend to think about some of these things separately, grief and hope separately, uh, the wonderful thing about what the Bible does, especially in light of the resurrection, is it brings them together. This passage in 1 Peter is no different because we see both elements here. We see elements of grief and we see elements of hope in this passage. And the reason is, this is a letter that was written to a community that was experiencing trials. They were undergoing persecution, uh, which is why Peter references their trials and their grief in verse 6. And they have been grieved by various trials and it has probably taken an emotional toll on them, a spiritual toll on them, uh, as is often the case for most people. And so what Peter wants to do here is he wants to encourage this community to persevere through their suffering in view of what Jesus ultimately accomplished in his death and in his resurrection. 
There is uh, this exhibit that Jen and I went to at the Met uh, on Thursday. Was it Thursday? Yeah, it was on Thursday because uh, Jen had a half day and the kids uh, were in school for the whole day. So uh, she, because she got out early, we decided to go check out the Met. And uh, we saw this exhibit, or one of the exhibits we saw is called Before Yesterday We Could Fly, an Afrofuturist period room. I don't know if anybody's ever heard of Afrofuturism. Has anybody heard of Afrofuturism or African futurism? Uh, basically, it's a, it's a term that was coined in the 90s, and uh, it probably grew much in popularity after Black Panther came out. But it is like this aesthetic movement that looks at African-American themes through speculative fiction, and oftentimes uh, the genre that uh, is looked at, it's through the lens of science fiction. And so one of the goals of Afrofuturism is to capture the Afro-diasporic experience by reimagining the past, but also uh, imagining the possibilities for the future. By imagining the possibilities of the future, what it's supposed to do is it's supposed to enable a group of people who have historically been uh, oppressed to reimagine themselves and reimagine their own identities in view of these alternate possibilities of the future. So the reason why Black Panther was such a significant movie that came out, uh, it's, and it's one of the most recognizable examples of this movement, you know, Wakanda represents this imagined, technologically advanced society that's free from ever having been subjected to Western colonialism and oppression. And when, you know, when I was learning about this movement of Afrofuturism, I thought there were a lot of par parallels uh, with respect to you know, certain aspects of Christianity. You know, the Christian faith uh, has this certain or presents a certain vision of the future, and it's meant to give people hope. It's meant to give uh, believers hope, and that hope is supposed to shape our present identities right, around this vision of the future. And I would say, you know, the difference between something like Afrofuturism and Christianity is that, you know, in Christianity, we don't have to generate our hope within ourselves or through our own creativity, but this is a hope, this is a vision of the future that is actually given to us in Jesus Christ. Uh, I know it seems like the world that we live in is falling apart. I don't know if you get that sense, but you know, we've just been through a pandemic. Even in this past week, for some of the folks that live in Brooklyn, there was a shooting that hit close to home for some of you. Uh, there's a war going on in Ukraine. And we're, when we constantly hear these kinds of news, I think there's actually another shooting uh, either today or yesterday that just happened. Um, not in New York, uh, but in another state. You, you kind of hear this news and it just reminds you of the reality of evil in the world. And because of that, it, it's very easy to lose hope, I think. I don't know if this is true, but some people think one of the indicators uh, of a society, of whether a society is hopeful for the future or not hopeful for the future, is the birth rate. And more and more people are deciding to either have less children or to have no children at all. And some people think it's related to how, in our society, people feel about the future. Because if it's true, at least in the United States, people are losing a sense of hope because the birth rate has declined by about 20% since 2007. And if this world is all there is, I can see why people would be losing hope. Uh, maybe we thought technological innovation would lead to some kind of progress, but it hasn't led to the kind of progress that maybe we thought or anticipated. For all the good that technology has accomplished, uh, it's also contributed to a lot of the bad things that we have now. Uh, but the loss of hope shouldn't be the experience of a Christian 
Because of all people, Christians are supposed to be characterized by hope because our hope is not rooted in the progress of this world or the circumstances of life, but our hope is rooted in something that transcends it. Uh, this past week, I listened to an audiobook just kind of thinking about today's sermon uh, that I think gives us some helpful perspective. It's, it's a very famous book uh, by somebody named Viktor Frankl, and he wrote a book called Man's Search for Meaning. And I listened to it because I've heard so many people reference it. Not only do like preachers reference it, but you know, Mark Maron, right, uh, who does that podcast, references it. And it was a very impactful book for him. So I was like, you know, I, I, I want to read the book. I didn't actually read it. I listened to it because it was free and audible. So I listened to the book this week. And Viktor Frankl was uh, the psychotherapist. And the story of his life, he, he was a survivor in the concentration camps in Germany. And he wasn't part of uh, one of the major concentration camps, but one of the lesser known and smaller concentration camps. But uh, what he does is in the first section of the book, the book is basically just two sections. In the first section of the book, he writes about uh, many of his observations about what living in a concentration camp does to people in terms of their psychology. Uh, so he's not writing a history or saying like, this is what happens. But what he's trying to observe is like, what does this kind of environment do to people? And he observed some people, uh, they would become very angry and they would actually become very brutal with the other uh, prisoners uh, because it was a way for them to get what they wanted in order to survive. So he said, you know, some of the most decent people, some people that I knew, and they were very decent before the concentration camps, within these camps, they became very indecent and very brutal. He looked at other people and in this environment, some people would just give up on life and they became so disillusioned, they had lost all hope and it was almost as if they had died on the inside and Frankel says something interesting, like he's recording the dates and the times of when he observes a turn in, in people and he notices when he observes a turn and then uh, the time in which they start to get sick and die from illness was very close together. So he thinks like this, this disillusionment actually led to their physical sickness and eventually led to their death. Another group of people, uh, they did hold on to hope and they said, you know, uh, as long as I get out of this concentration camp and I go back to my life, then things will get better. But then he observes that rarely happened. After going through such a traumatic experience and seeing so much terror and so much evil, uh, after they were freed from these camps, uh, some people were still very disillusioned. Uh, some people had a very hard time uh, kind of dealing with or coping with some of the things that they experience. And Frankl's like, he's like making observations about uh, how this concentrated uh, experience of evil and pain and suffering, what it does to people's psychology. But then Frankl says this, he says, there was one small group of people who were not only able to maintain their sense of decency in these camps, uh, these were people who were able to continue to be kind to other people in the context of these camps. But uh, he observes they had a kind of inner strength that kept, th kept them intact and kind of uh, afloat in one of the most horrific environments uh, one could be in. And what he observes about this group of people is, he says, they had the kind of hope that not even death could destroy. Uh, Jesus' resurrection, now Frankel, uh, he was a, a Jewish, uh, you know, obviously he's in a concentration camp, so he was a Jewish man, um, but he had some understanding of a transcendent God. And for the Christian, at least, Jesus' resurrection, it does offer us this kind of hope, a kind of hope that transcends even death and the worst kinds of evil. 
It's the kind of hope that uh, can hold us back from becoming the most brutal people even as the world around us crumbles. Uh, it's a kind of hope that even suffering and evil and death cannot take away. And it's a kind of hope that what Peter says results in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And this is a hope that uh, if you are a Christian believer, something that you ought to treasure and hold on to desperately because this is something that we all need. And so let's look at what Peter says to us about this living hope through the resurrection of Jesus. You know, the first thing Peter says is this. He says we are born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that language of born again, it touches on identity because what Peter is saying here is that through the new birth, we actually become a new people. Uh, Paul uses different language. He uses the language of old creation and new creation, but it's the same idea that through faith, we actually become new. We have a we become new, new person, a new identity, and in the last resurrection, we will have these new bodies to the point where Peter now calls us exiles and strangers in this world in, uh, uh, in the first two verses that weren't read today. And this language of new birth, it tells us about our new identities. Uh, it tells us that, you know, in our modern world, I think the word identity is kind of like a trendy word and uh, people are talking about it all the time. But usually the way we think about identity is we say identity is something that we can construct, whether through our own achievements or according to our own desires. Uh, but when it comes to uh, the identity that comes from the new birth, it's not one that is constructed, but it's actually one that has to be given to us. Growing up, my mom would always say, uh, in a facetious manner uh, when my birthday came around, she would say, I don't understand why I'm supposed to get you presents for your birthday because I did all the work in birthing you. And she was joking, but she kind of has a point, right? <clears throat> we don't call it labor because the baby's working hard to get born. Uh, we call it labor because the mother is doing all the work, all the pushing, enduring all the pain in order to birth this child. And, you know, in a similar way, uh, being born again means that we aren't the ones that are making ourselves new. We aren't birthing ourselves to this new resurrected life. Jesus is the one who performs the labor, namely through his death and his resurrection. And that's why Peter says God has caused us to be born again according to his great mercy. The only reason that we can receive these new identities through a new birth, these new resurrected bodies, the only reason that we can have this living hope is because God was merciful to us. Now that's really good news for us because here's what it means. It means the resurrection is not limited by anything with respect to ourselves. If you think about a lot of hope in this world, uh, a lot of hope in this world is probably related to somebody's maybe social standings, maybe somebody's race, maybe somebody's socioeconomic status. Uh, those who seemingly uh, should have greater hope for the future are the ones who are educated, who are affluent, who have uh, a lot of opportunities for growth and upward mobility. But you see, because a new birth is based on the mercy of God, it means this, that whether you are rich or poor, whether you're educated or uneducated, whether you're black, white, Asian, privileged, without privilege, no matter what, everybody has access to this living hope through the resurrection. Uh, I guess the twist of the kingdom is that the poor and the needy might actually be better positioned to receive this hope because they don't have alternative sources of hope to lean on in this world, uh, which is why Jesus says things like, blessed are the poor in spirit. The second thing we see in this passage, Peter tells us, 
you know, there is an inheritance, and this inheritance is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. And again, what does that language of inheritance tells us? It tells us that it's something that we wait to receive in heaven. It's not something that is given to us on the basis of our achievement or on the basis of our merit. An inheritance is given to somebody just simply on the virtue of uh, you're in relationship with the person who is dispensing that inheritance. And likewise, Peter says, we await to receive this inheritance, not because we earned it, but because God, by his grace and mercy, has adopted us into his family on account of his love and his grace and his mercy towards us. And the thing that makes this inheritance so special is found in these adjectives that Peter uses. Imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. And these are words that tell us that the kind of inheritance that's kept in heaven for us is going to be of lasting and eternal significance. Because everything perishes in this world, right? A, a sweet, ripe mango tastes good in, a mo in the moment, but eventually it's going to start to rot. It's going to start to smell bad and taste bad. Everything gets defiled in this world. You buy a brand new pair of white shoes and uh, you walk a day in New York City and they'll get dirty. Uh, everything fades, even our own bodies. Uh, you know, for years and years, Jen was trying to get me to use uh, facial products uh, like toner, like anti-wrinkle cream uh, and lotion. And I resisted for many, many years because that stuff is expensive, right? I was like, no, I'm, I'm just good with water. <laughs> but you know what happened uh, during the pandemic? I started making like these little devotional videos on Instagram and I saw my face and I was like, oh boy, uh, I'm, I'm looking old. <laughs> I'm not looking so good. And so after that, you know what happened? I started buying these products, right? <laughs> I, I now use a, um, I use a toner, right? <laughs> I use anti-wrinkle cream, and, and I want to slow the aging process on my face. Now, this is probably, um, you know, maybe it's a million-dollar industry, but maybe it's a billion-dollar, probably a billion-dollar industry, right? This... Uh, these like facial creams and, and things like that. Because why? Everybody wants to look younger for us as long as they can. But the reality is at some point, time is going to beat us, right? Our face is going to get more and more wrinkly and our beauty will start to fade. And the best thing that we're going to be able to do is just kind of slow it down, slow down that fading glory, but we won't be able to stop it because it's inevitable and time comes. But that's what we do in life, I think, right? I think we, we settle a lot. We settle uh, for things that are good enough. Uh, as long as I can slow down the wrinkles, that's good enough. And in settling for good enough, it's very easy to miss that which is greatest. I think a lot of people here, if you're, uh, I don't know, if you've heard sermons for a long time, you've probably heard this quoted. Uh, it comes from C.S. Lewis, and it's his famous line about mud pies. And he says, our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Uh, what C.S. Lewis says is our problem is not that our desires are too strong. Our desires are actually too weak and we settle for things that are not as glorious as what God has to offer us. So here's a question. How do we get to the point where we don't settle for that which is good enough, 
but our eyes become open to something that is greatest. How do we get to a point where our eyes are open to this infinite joy that Jesus offers us through his resurrection? And I think uh, maybe this is an unfortunate answer, but this is probably the real answer. It probably actually comes by way of grief and suffering. You know, suffering is connected to uh, the reality that nothing lasts. If you think about what suffering is, uh, suffering is the experience of loss. The more we value something or the more we love somebody, when we lose it or when we lose that person, our grief uh, hurts, right? The pain hurts. And since everything we value and everyone that we love will eventually be lost, uh, I can safely say our futures are going to be filled with a lot of grief. It's just an inevitability. And while I would never go so far as to say that uh, this suffering is good, uh, it doesn't mean that it doesn't do something good in us. Because one thing that grief and suffering can do is it can force us to press into this hope that comes through the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, here's what I mean. I, I think for younger people, death is more of an abstraction. And the younger you are, the more abstract death probably seems. I don't know if you're, uh, any of you who have kids, um, I don't know if any of them talk about death, but my kids talk about death, uh, and they do it so flippantly. <laughs> uh, Fred knows, my, uh, my five-year-old, I think, was talking to him about death and dying too. And my five-year-old would say things like, you know, Daddy, uh, are you going to die first? And I would say, I sure hope so, right? I hope I die first. I don't know if I could take it if I didn't die first. And uh, then she would kind of point and say, ha, you're going to die first, right? <laughs> and it's like so insensitive and so flippant. And it's like, do you know what you're, you're saying, child? I <laughs> and I think the reason why uh, young kids can be so insensitive and flippant about death is because you know, for her, it's, uh, it's an abstraction. She hasn't experienced uh, the pain of death yet in significant ways. She hasn't experienced that kind of sadness that comes when you realize you're not going to be able to talk to this person anymore or hug this person anymore, at least in this life, in this world. And for the most part, younger people uh, are more likely to view and understand death like that, as an abstraction. And when you understand death as an abstraction, or even suffering and grief as an abstraction, I think the hope of the resurrection also becomes an abstraction. We think about the fact that Jesus rose from the dead, but you know what, that reality may still feel a little bit distant, at least to some of us, on that experiential level. You know, it's hard to know how good that hope is until we get to a point where we desperately need a, a hope that transcends this world, a hope that cannot be taken away. It's not until these moments of deep suffering and grief, until these things come knocking on our door that we all of a sudden strive for a hope that endures, that will make us feel better, that will comfort us, that will make us not look at this world in despair and disillusionment. And I think that's why Peter says here that the trials that this community has endured, it tested the genuine, genuineness of their faith because it was through suffering that they're actually able to realize, hey, their faith is genuine. The very thing that they hope for, this living hope that they grasp onto through the resurrection of Jesus Christ is genuine. It's real to them. I don't know if anybody saw this, but last Sunday in the New York Times, 
uh, Tish Harrison Warren interviewed Tim Keller. Um, if you don't know who Tim Keller is, he was a, a pastor of like a New York church, a big New York church redeemer. Uh, and recently he was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. And pancreatic cancer is like one of the worst cancers to be diagnosed with. Um, and life expectancy is not very long. And um, so this, uh, this interview came out last Sunday. It's called How a Cancer Diagnosis Makes Jesus' Death and Resurrection Mean More. And, uh, you know, she is interviewing Tim Keller. And uh, this is what Tim Keller says. He says, there's one sense in which if you believe in God, it's a mental abstraction. You believe with your head. I came to realize that the experiential side of my faith really needed to be strengthened or I wasn't going to be able to handle this. And then he talks about how his spiritual life has grown. He says, you know, I pray more often, but I also do it more longingly. And what's really amazing is that when you know you've got to have more of God, because there's really no alternative, to our surprise, there is more of God to be gotten. And you say, why didn't I find this before? And the answer is, you didn't feel the same sense of need. Uh, I find that remarkable because as... Uh, as much as he has probably experienced death as a minister, as many funerals as he's probably officiated, um, when death comes to him, uh, it, it reaches a whole <laughs> new level of reality, right? But the flip side of what he experiences is God becomes more alive to him. I've heard uh, him mention, you know, sometimes we have like these New York pastor um, like Zoom meetings and things like that. And I remember he was talking once at one of these meetings and he said, uh, you know, this is going to sound like, uh, this is going to sound weird, this is going to sound stupid, you may not believe me. But he said, spiritually speaking, I, don't, I would rather be where I am right now than to go back to where I was before I got the di cancer diagnosis because God has just been that much sweeter and I've come to know him and grown much more intimate with him through this cancer diagnosis. And I think, you know, I'll say this, you know, this is a hope that we want, this is a hope that we need to experience. I don't know how much control we have of being able to just experience it and grasp onto it. And I think sometimes moments like that will come where all of our legs are knocked out, all the legs that we stand to support on, uh, whether it's our abilities or our talents or our physical health or our achievements, or our own sense of this is what I want for the future and I'm going to try to get it, but then you realize it's unobtainable or certain things happen in life where it no longer becomes a reality. Everything that we put our hope on in this world, at some point, those legs are going to be removed from us. And when those legs are removed, we will either fall down in despair or we will lean deeper into God himself and we will grasp the wonderful, glorious hope that he gives us through the resurrection. And when we realize that there is one who holds us up, and if we can press deeper into him in those moments, then we begin to experience uh, a hope, the kind of hope that Frankl, Frankl is talking about, the kind of hope that endures, the kind of hope that transcends even suffering and death, kind of joy and a kind of love and a kind of glory that God promises to give us through the power of the resurrection. You know, as I was thinking about life and, you know, even myself, death is an abstraction, right? Uh, it's becoming less and less of an abstraction, but I think I'm still relatively young, even though I'm using all these facial creams. Um, some people 
might think what the world needs most are like morally upright people. Some people might think what the world needs most are maybe productive or talented people or smart people who can solve all these world's problems. Some people might even say what we need is kinder people. You know what I think we need personally? Personally, I think we need more people with hope. That's what I think we need. People who can hold on to hope in spite of the darkness, in spite of the death, in spite of the decay, that is going to be an inevitability in this world. And guess what? The church doesn't necessarily have the most morally upright people, right? <laughs> doesn't have the most productive people, doesn't have the most talented people, doesn't even have the most kindest people. That's not the church. But here's the thing, the church can certainly have the most hopeful people because our hope is not in us, our hope is not in this world, our hope is not even generated within ourselves. Our hope comes from Jesus. Jesus gives us hope through his resurrection. And if you are sick, if you are weak, if you are depressed, if you are anxious, if you are in a place of despair, I tell you, friends, uh, as hard as it is, that may not be the worst place to be because that may be a time where you can press more and more into Jesus and experience this glorious hope, maybe one that you never even imagined before, even as a Christian could not even have imagined before, experience a sense of hope that you never had before. And I tell you, uh, as a world seemingly, and again, I said this last week, I think it's relative, I don't know if the world is crumbling around us uh, relative to how all of history, but uh, I think the sentiment is there, and for a lot of people, it definitely feels like a lot of bad news and a lot of bad things are happening. And I guess we can either grow hardened to it we can despair of it, we can be disillusioned by it. But what Easter tells us is this, there is an alternative, and the alternative is this. The stone's been rolled away. Jesus has been risen from the dead. He is victorious over sin and death, and he promises us a future inheritance kept in heaven for us, secured in heaven for us, that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. And if we can be a people that really lean into that hope, uh, I think we'll be changed. We'll be completely transformed and filled with the joy that we all long for. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for um, this wonderful news of the resurrection. And, you know, we do admit that sometimes it does seem uh, kind of like a distant hope and it's, it doesn't seem real to us. And, um, you know, in those moments, what I guess what we want to ask is that your Holy Spirit would uh, continually be working within us. Uh, it's, you know, it's so easy to get distracted by the day-to-day -day and uh, what we observe on our phones and sometimes our, we can't help our immediate emotional responses to some of these things and uh, we kind of say, ugh, like, well, what's, what's happening? And we look to the future and it looks incredibly bleak. Uh, for some of us, uh, we have experienced that sting of death and we have lost loved ones. Um, for others of us, maybe we're going through it 
but all of us will experience it at some point uh, in our futures. And I do pray that in the midst of suffering and grief, um, you know, we, uh, we do want to lament and grief because uh, these things are uh, sad and worthy of grief and worthy of lament. But I pray that in our grief, uh, you would still shine and reveal to us light in darkness. That we would see the reality of the resurrection. And it would not be a mental abstraction, but it would be something that our hearts intimately feel and experience. And that we would be shaped by this hope in our personhood and in our identities. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.